Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis, and so glad you're here with me. And folks, we have a good one for you today. One of the most sensational crimes to ever come out of America's heartland, the story of the brutal murder of the Wolf family in rural North Dakota. I'm so pleased to be talking to Vernon Keel, a man who has taught media law at several Midwestern universities. He started his journalism career at his hometown newspaper, just three miles from the site of the terrible murders we're going to be discussing shortly. His book is called The Murdered Family, and it's a really compelling read. Mr. Vernon Keel, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me about this. Thank you very much for having me as a guest. So I take it from your personal proximity to the Wolf family farm that you've known about these murders for a long time. Uh, that's that's true, Eric. Actually, nobody can grow up in that in that area in that town uh, without being very familiar with with that tragedy that occurred almost a hundred years ago now. Uh, and uh, one of the things is when when you go out to the town cemetery, you, you can't be uh, you can't miss the uh, the uh, the grave site for the Wolf family. It's it's a it's a large site. Uh, when I was growing up, it had overgrown lilacs, and every kid going out there, uh, no matter how many times, you've got to go over to the Wolf family uh, grave site. You've got to look at the grave markers, and it, it's, uh, it makes an impression on, uh, on anybody growing up there, for sure. So you chose to write this book as historical fiction, and as I read the book, I got a pretty good feeling that everything that you wrote was historically true. But, but could you talk about your decision to write your book as fiction as opposed to the more traditional nonfiction way? Well, that, that's a good question. I get, that, I get asked that question often, Eric. Uh, and it was a very important decision that I had to make uh, early on in, in my writing. But after really getting into the research and having grown up there, too, I made the decision to write this book as uh, historical fiction 
in order to try to, uh, to, to, to tell the story in a more interesting way, because through fiction you can fill in some of the gaps in the, through narrative and dialogue. Uh, but also, it always kind of bothered me that uh, uh, all we knew about those children who were brutally murdered that day almost 100 years ago, were, were they, they, were, they were simply names on grave markers to us. And I thought that through historical fiction, I could um, could bring these characters back to life and give them the kind of personality that helps us understand better who they were and and uh, and, and what they are, especially for the children uh, and the older girl and the hired boy, how they were looking forward to their lives unfolding. And so that's 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 the reason that I chose to do it that way. Uh, but one thing I do tell people is that uh, the murdered family is a novel. Uh, not written by a novelist. It's a novel written by a journalist. And so you're absolutely right. I mean, there's nothing. I did a lot of research. My background is in legal and historical research. And and I had the uh, cooperation of, of a woman who was clerk of district court in the county where these murders were committed. She was very helpful. I got a lot of the information out of the files, affidavits and translation from German newspapers. So you're right. I mean, it, the the story is well documented. You can say, well, it's fiction. Yeah, but it's historical fiction and it's well grounded in the facts. And I can truly say that after all these years since the book came out in 2010, that there is nothing in this, this story that, to my knowledge, uh, uh, deviates from the, the facts as as we know them. Let's start with the Wolf family. Who were they? What was their life like in Turtle Lake, North Dakota, in early 1920? Well, Jacob uh, Wolf was an immigrant German from Russia. He homesteaded in, in uh, three miles north of Turtle Lake in 1902. And uh, just kind of an aside as to how I have even more of a personal kind of relationship to this story is that uh, my father, who was 55 year old, five years old when I was born, uh, homesteaded uh, 12 miles northwest of Turtle Lake the same year that Jacob Wolf homesteaded three miles north of town. Uh, so my dad knew my dad knew the Wolf family very well. But uh, they had a farm. Uh, Wolf was a, was a, a, a pretty good farmer, and he was uh, considered to be better off than others. Uh, he had uh, he had six daughters. Uh, and uh, no sons, which is why he had the hired boy helping him uh, at the time of, of the murders. Uh, and uh, he had he had land originally. Uh, his original homestead was about a half a mile from where the murders occurred because he was able to uh, purchase an additional some additional land, and he moved his farm up to the to this other location about a half a mile closer to town. What did what did your dad remember about those little girls? Well, he didn't say much about the, the little girls. My dad was, uh, my father was Scandinavian, and uh, anybody who uh, knows the early Scandinavian culture of homesteaders, they, they didn't talk much more than they had to. My dad, he would answer my questions, but never volunteer anymore. It was not the kind of conversation that he would say, well, let me tell you the story about this. No, he never did that. Uh, I know that he knew, uh, he knew uh, Jacob Wolf quite well. Uh, and considered Jacob Wolf to be a, an excellent farmer and a good man. He also knew the neighbor farmer who uh, was the one who signed the confession to the murders and, and then later, or almost immediately, uh, said that the confession was under duress. But my father knew him, and I know that he visited uh, this man, Henry Lair, at least, at least one time in the state penitentiary, if not more. 
And all I do remember taking away from my conversations as a boy with my father about this subject was that my father believed that uh, Henry Lair did not commit the murders. Okay, so let's get to the story. Uh, one of the, the first characters you introduce in your book is John Kraft. Who was he? What was his relationship to the wolves? And when does he notice that something at the farm is amiss? Well, that is that is the beginning of the story. Uh, and uh, John Kraft uh, was a... Uh, his mother actually had homesteaded about three miles uh, north... Uh, I'm sorry, three miles south of where Wolf homesteaded. Uh, and, uh, and John grew up on that farm, but uh, he also rented some farmland just across the road to the west from the Wolf family farm. He rented uh, some acreage uh, from uh, the Larable boys who were the local bankers. So he had his, his mother's homestead that he was farming that was about a quarter of a mile west of Turtle Lake. And then he was renting land about uh, three miles further north uh, from, uh, from the bank boys. And, uh, and uh, that was right across the, 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 the road from, from the Wolf Farm. Now, uh, the murders occurred on Thursday, but Wednesday, the day before, uh, Jacob Wolf approached John Kraft, who at, at the time was doing plowing in his land just across the road from the Wolf Farm, and he went over to talk to him, and, and uh, he explained to John Kraft that, uh, that he was really getting behind in his seeding, and uh, he wondered if he could borrow John Kraft's drill press to, to start seeding his, his wheat. And uh, Kraft said, "No, that's fine. Uh, I don't. I won't be using it for a few days. And uh, go ahead and 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 and, and uh, borrow it if you want to." And he said, "No, I haven't used it yet this spring, so it will require some. It'll require some minor adjustments and repairs." So that was on on Wednesday, and Wolf had told Kraft that he was uh, going to come over the next morning. Well, Thursday morning, the day of the murders, Kraft. Uh, was working, he was plowing in that land that he was renting across from the wolf farm. And uh, he noticed that uh, John Wolf and his hired boy, now this was a, a new hired boy, he had just started working for him on Monday. And the reason he had him is because he, you know, Wolf had three daughters and his oldest daughter, uh, Bertha, believe it or not, almost 13 years old, she could uh, run uh, run his team behind the plow, but uh, he would prefer to have a hired boy do that. And so he hired this boy on Monday. So Crafts uh, on Thursday morning, Kraft saw Wolf and a hired boy, both both with their teams, and they were they were plowing. And he knew that they were finishing up plowing that that field that they wanted to start seeding the next day. During the during the morning of uh, that Thursday, uh, Kraft saw Bertha, the oldest daughter, uh, come up into the uh, up into the, uh, the the field where Wolf and his hired boy were plowing. And uh, Kraft saw the, Bertha take over her, her father's team and continue plowing while uh, Jacob Wolf uh, went across the road and, uh, and, and was making some of those repairs on the drill press. It took him, Kraft said, about 20, 30 minutes. And then he went back and took over his team, and Bertha went back into, over the hill into the farm and disappeared. Then around 11 o'clock, Kraft saw Wolf and the hired boy unhitch their teams and uh, walk them uh, over the hill, but down into the uh, into the wolf farm. And that farm was was really hidden in the hills. I mean, you could you could only see it for a very short distance on the main road that went by. Otherwise, it was buried in the hills. But anyhow, Kraft saw them about 11 o'clock take the horses uh, uh, over the hill in, in, into uh, the farm to uh, 
give them water and feed while they had had their lunch and Kraft fully expected to see them come back soon, like within an hour or so, because he knew Wolf was anxious to get uh, back get get to his his seeding his wheat. Uh, but they never showed up that afternoon, and uh, Kraft said he didn't think much of that because things happen. Things come up. Maybe something came up that that Wolf had to tend to, and he, he just couldn't get back to. Well, they didn't show up the next day either, and that really concerned Kraft. But again, it was none of his business. And he knew that Wolf would, would get there when when he could, and uh, but on Friday evening when he when he went home he got to that point on the main road where he could look back and see into the farm, and he saw clothes hanging on the line. Uh, like this was late in the day, and uh, you know farm wives would have taken their clothes off the line probably by now. But more suspicious than that was that he saw. Um, Wolf's team of horses still in harness, standing loose in the yard, and they were eating hay out of a, out of a, out of a hay wagon in the yard. Well, that was very unusual. So he went back home and went to sleep. Well, the next morning he gets up. Um, this is now Saturday morning. He, he, he's on his way up to his land that he's renting, and um, he notices that the clothes are still hanging on the line. He sees the horses, and he sees another team. That would be the hired boys team. Also, and they were eating grass out of the yard. So he went and uh, he, I guess he just let those things go. I mean, it was very, it was very unusual, very suspicious. But he went and he plowed till about 11:30. He said, and then he uh, he drove back to his his uh, farm and told his wife about it while he was they were about to have lunch. He said, "I'm really concerned." So the two of them went over and uh, and uh, were going to check out what what happened, and uh, he said that while they were driving over there, um, his wife his wife noticed the clothes on the line. She said, "Oh well, the clothes are on the line," you know, and and he said, uh, "Well, they were on the line yesterday too." And then his wife said, "Well, that's not good. Something really bad is that has happened." So they went over there, and that's where they found they found the bodies. They found. Uh, they found three bodies in the barn. They found uh, five bodies in the cellar under the kitchen. Uh, and the only survivor was the eight-month-old baby. Her name was Emma. And I grew up knowing her as a friend of my mother's and, and the mother of some children who were a little younger than me in, in school. And they took the baby to a, a neighbor farmer who was a quarter of a mile away who had a, a, a young woman who was living with her widowed father and her brother. And and uh, they were very close to the wolves, so Crafts decided that was a good place to take the baby. And then they went to town where Kraft reported uh, the murders. So that's sort of the beginning, how, it, how the story was first made known about the murders. It's interesting. This is 1920, before most people had radios in their homes. And in your book, you write about how the police tell the local telephone operator just to call everybody in the area and notify them of what had happened personally and tell them that there was potentially a, a murderer on the loose. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, uh, you know, two things struck me when I was getting into the research. First was how many of these farmers already had automobiles? They had Model T Fords. I mean, now I, I had to try to figure that out. And, and I actually got statistics from Ford Motor about the number of uh, automobiles sold in North Dakota by 1920. And then when you see the pictures, some of them are on the website, Eric, uh, about the, uh, the day of the funeral. You see, you know, lots of black Model T Fords. That was one thing that struck me. The other was that they did, in fact, have telephone service. 
uh, and, um, and and the, and the, this is gives you another idea of how personal the story is. Uh, uh, my father was married uh, before uh, before he married my mother. His wife his wife died in 1937, and sort of my mother's husband. Uh, but his first wife uh, was a Lynch girl, and uh, the uh, the telephone operator in in the book was the actual telephone operator, and she was my father's sister-in-law, his wife's sister. And the town policeman at the time of the murders was my father's father-in-law from from the first from the first uh, marriage of his. But yeah, it was interesting that they had these telephone uh, these the, the telephone service already, and uh, and that 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 the telephone. Uh, figures into into the murder, and we'll get to that a little bit later. So slowly, various law enforcement officials are notified of the murders, county sheriffs, town policemen, and even the chief of police in Bismarck, which is a bit of a distance from Turtle Lake. His name was Chris Martinson, and he ends up playing a, a pretty prominent role in the investigation, but it was almost an accident how he was pulled into this, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, it, it was no accident. It, it, in my in, in my opinion, and from my research, uh, uh, this was very much by design. Uh, the murders occurred in uh, McLean County, and Ole Stefrud was the sheriff of McLean County, and uh, he was. This was his jurisdiction, and this was his uh, murder uh, crime scene that he was going to be investigating, and. Uh, the thing you have to understand uh, is that these murders occurred three weeks before the nominating conventions of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Um, and Bill Langer, who was the attorney general, uh, was running for the Republican nomination for governor. And um, in my view, he did not want an unsolved mass murder getting in the way of his nomination for, for governor. Now, understand that as the attorney general, he was the chief law enforcement officer for the state of North Dakota. So when Ole Stefford said these murders occurred in my county uh, and I'm going to be in charge of the investigation, and Langer said, well, the murders may have occurred in your county, but they occurred in my state. So uh, there was there was this, this kind of political intrigue that surrounds the story because Langer uh, really wanted to get this crime solved. Now, he, he was living in Bismarck, which is the state capital, and he knew Chris Martinson, who was chief of police. And, I'm, I, and I know and there's evidence in, in things that I, that I uncovered that, uh, in fact, uh, after the murders were all, everything was, was done, uh, Langer uh, wrote a letter to the city of Bismarck thanking them for letting him borrow uh, Chief Martinson, and that letter was published in the Bismarck Tribune. But what happened is that Langer didn't trust the local officials. He wanted to get this crime solved and get it solved quickly before the nominating conventions. So he contacted Chris Martinson and said, I want you to go up there with those boys and help them with this investigation and let's get this thing solved and let's get it solved quickly. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing, Eric, is that at the end of the day, the, uh, the, the neighbor farmer signed a confession uh, three weeks after the murders, uh, in the early hours of the same day that Bill Langer, the attorney general, was nominated for governor in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to this man who becomes the primary suspect in these murders, Henry Layer. 
He's introduced in your book when the sheriff finds him snooping around the wolf farm after the murders. Can you talk about that moment? Yeah, I can talk about that scene for sure. It's very interesting, and and uh, but this is kind of an aside, Eric. I've written a, a screenplay and uh, and in, in about the twelfth revision of it, and uh, that particular scene is really uh, interesting and, and and makes good cinema because what happened. The bodies were discovered. The murders happened on Thursday, around uh, in the early in the late morning, and uh, the bodies were found around noon on Saturday. And uh, the the law, the, the the sheriff who was in Bismarck at the time on that Saturday, he and the other investigating officials, the state's attorney and his deputies and um, and Martinson uh, from Bismarck, they didn't get there till uh, late Saturday. It was after dark. And Sheriff Stefrud uh, decided he was going to spend the night with some of the relatives who were basically guarding the farm. And uh, he went out and spend, spent the evening with uh, Emmanuel Hofer, uh, who was, uh, he and his wife ended up taking care of the little baby because uh, they were the aunt and uncle. But there were a few others, but he spent the night there. And in the morning, uh, everybody left to go over to Hofer's house for breakfast, and uh, except for the sheriff. The sheriff said, well, I'll stay here. Somebody's got to stay here. So uh, this was Sunday morning, and um, the other people leave, and, and the sheriff, after a certain point, he decides he has to go to the outhouse. So he, he's in the outhouse when he hears a car door slam on the top of the hill. Now, they had put a, a, a small barricade up on the road so people knew they weren't supposed to drive down there, but he heard this car door slam, and he's in the, in the outhouse, and he looks through the, through the slats or the opening that, that was available, that, and he saw this this farmer, this man, come walking down the hill. And it's Henry Lair, a neighbor. And he watches Lair, and he sees Lair go over. Uh, he, 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 he looks, he tries the door to the house, and of course the house is locked. Bear in mind now, there are five bodies in the cellar. Uh, and uh, then he goes over to the, um, the summer kitchen, which is, uh, that was very German-Russian. They had a special, a small building that they used in the summer for canning and things so they could keep get it real hot without getting the house hot. But the investigators pretty much spent the evening in the in the summer kitchen, and he goes and he looks in, in the summer kitchen. Nobody's there. Then he starts walking towards the barn. Now, he came over there to help. He'd been over there the afternoon before, after, the, after he heard about the murders, to help milk cows and gather eggs and things like that. But as he was walking towards the barn, Sheriff Stefford yells at him from inside the outhouse, says, hey, what, what are you doing out there? And the sheriff says in his affidavit, he said, uh, and the man appeared startled. And I'm thinking, who wouldn't appear startled? You're on a farm. There are eight bodies, you know, at two different locations. You think you're all by yourself. You're walking towards the barn, and a voice out of nowhere says, hey, what, the, what are you doing here? So that, that's, that's how the sheriff uh, meets uh, Henry Lair, the neighbor farmer. And he seems a little suspicious, doesn't he? And after a conversation, the sheriff learns that he'd had some conflict with Mr. Wolf. Evidently, Lair's cattle crossed onto Wolf's land, and Wolf's dogs went after Lair's cattle, probably a, a, a very common kind of dispute between farmers. Well, uh, that, that's true. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, what I learned in the research, and this comes from other other neighbors' affidavits, is that uh, that Jacob Wolf and this man Henry Lair did not get along, and they hadn't gotten along for several years, uh, and they were not on speaking terms, and, and every, everybody knew that. 
and they knew that they had had trouble, and, and uh, they had had different kinds of, of disputes, but the main one was that, remember, I, I explained that uh, Wolf had homesteaded in a, at, at a location uh, just about a, well, maybe a half mile north of where he where the murders ever occurred because he, he moved his buildings. But he was still farming that land, and that land uh, adjoined the land of, him, of Henry Lair, and there were no fences. And so um, uh, Lair... Uh, would would graze his cattle on on his land, but from time to time they would wander over onto Wolf's land. And what I learned through the research was that Jacob Wolf had two really good uh, herding dogs. And uh, if he'd go up on the hill, just uh, just just in the backyard or the north of, of his house, he could look down and see. If he saw Larry's cattle on his land, he would send his dogs down there. And these were well-trained dogs. They would run down. They'd chase the cattle off his land. I mean, these were smart dogs. So there, there was that dispute, but they, but, but they didn't get along. And, and as a result, everybody knew that Henry Lair would be a suspect. Even Henry Lair knew he was going to be a suspect. In fact, people told him, he, he told, the, he went up to the sheriff uh, on, on that Sunday afternoon. Now, they met on Sunday morning, but he went, you know, hundreds of farmers gathered around to sort of visit the scene of the crime and to try to help with the investigation, and I'm sure they trampled over a lot of evidence. But during the afternoon, he walked right up to Sheriff Stefford, and he said, I know I'm going to be a suspect. And uh, and he said, well, why do you say that? He said, well, because everybody knows we didn't get along. And, in fact, people, neighbors have come up to me and said, Henry, you're certainly going to be a suspect, for sure. So he knew that he was a prime suspect, and uh, because of the, of the of the history of bad relations that he had had with Jacob Wolf for uh, for the past several years. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906. 
when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. So Martinson arrives, Langer eventually arrives. What what evidence do they find at the farm? Well, first of all, I don't know if this is important, Eric, or not, but, I mean, the, the sheriff on Saturday when the bodies were found, the sheriff was in Bismarck uh, with his... Uh, state's attorney, and they were visiting the state's attorney's mother-in-law, who was in bad health. And uh, while the state's attorney was visiting his mother-in-law, Sheriff Steffrude was sort of making the rounds and, and visiting. So when they when the bodies were discovered, uh, the deputy, Virgil Hawes, uh, in Washburn, which is the capital or the uh, county seat for McLean County, he called around in, in Bismarck and said they're trying to find the sheriff. And in the course of his conversations, he, he called the, the police department to ask if Sheriff Stafford was there. And that's how Martinson found out about, about the crime. So anyhow, when they finally they got Sheriff Stafford, the police chief asked him to stop by the police, the police department. And so he did with his state's attorney. And they were anxious to get up to Turtle Lake. And by that time, Langer had already contacted uh, Martinson, and, and uh, that's when he told him, well, I want to go up there with you. So he went up there, the, the three of them, the, the state's attorney, the sheriff, and the police chief from Bismarck, uh, all three went up to uh, to Turtle Lake, uh, and they got there uh, late Saturday. Langer didn't get there until Monday afternoon, but but Martinson already had uh, had his instructions to go up there and try, try to see what they could find. Now, what what they found when they got up there, was there were there were three three bodies in the in the barn uh, that would be Jacob Wolf and his two oldest daughters after Bertha that was Maria who was nine and Edna who was seven uh, those two girls and, and Wolf they found uh, their body in this their bodies in the the barn and they were covered with hay and and in the other five bodies were in the in the cellar underneath uh, the kitchen there was a trap door in the kitchen floor and underneath there you found the bodies of of Mrs. Wolf, uh, three of the girls, and the hired boy. So that that's what they found. Now they were looking around for evidence, and um, the next day they found uh, uh, they found a shotgun. Uh, actually, a, a neighbor farmer who was a local auctioneer, he found the shotgun in the slough uh, just south of of the farm, and he it, it was a double barrel shotgun that had been broken apart. He found. He found the uh, the barrels first because they were sticking up out of the mud, and then he when he went in to retrieve that he he saw the uh, the wood stock floating. So they found the the murder weapon. Then interestingly enough, uh, during the uh, during the day on Sunday, it was, I think it was in the morning, Wolf or, or Lair, who was the neighbor farmer, was with a, a lot of other neighbors came there to help with uh, the chores. Now these were farmers, and, and the, they knew that when they when they had heard that Wolf was murdered and his family, and he had been mur- murdered two days before, they knew that there were cows that needed milking, there were uh, livestock that needed to be fed, there were eggs that needed to be gathered, and so on. So they were all over there helping. But interestingly enough, uh, Henry Lair and uh, another neighbor farmer were gathering eggs, and uh, 
uh, Larry said, uh, let's go upstairs in the barn and uh, in the hayloft in the barn. I saw, I saw some chickens up there yesterday. I'm sure they're eggs. So they went up there. Well, they went up in the hayloft. Lair found four shotgun shells in a chicken's nest. I mean, they were they were neatly placed. Somebody had neatly placed four empty shotgun shells in the chicken's nest. So he was the one who found them. And and I remember growing up, you know, people say, well, how how could he know that there were chickens or there were shotgun shells in the chicken's nest? And uh, in 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 the affidavits that I was able to look at for Lair and the, the other neighbor who was up in the up in the hayloft with Lair and with the sheriff, it was that. Uh, the sheriff said, uh, asked him a question. How did you know there were going to be eggs? There were going to be shotgun shells. I didn't, I didn't know there were going to be shotgun shells. I came up here looking for eggs. He said, well, how did you know there were going to be eggs up there? He says, because I saw chickens going up there yesterday, and chickens lay their eggs where they go, and you have to go and, and go and find them. So that's what the, they found the, the murder weapon. They found four empty shotgun shells, and um, not much more in terms of, of hard evidence uh, that was, was helpful at that point. So the doctor arrives, and the investigators and the doctor end up holding an inquest in one of the sheds. Can you talk about the doctor's conclusions about how the family members had died? Yeah, there were two doctors involved. There was a local doctor, Dr. Heinzroth, who was my doctor, by the way, when I was a kid growing up there. He was an older man by then. But there was Dr. Heinzroth, the local doctor, and then there was Dr. Stuckey, who was the county coroner, and he lived in another town, Garrison. So uh, as soon as he heard about the murders, he came right over. He was there Sunday morning, and he met. Uh, he might have gotten over there Saturday night and slept. I think uh, with uh, was a, was a, a, a night guest at, at, at Dr. Heinzroth's uh, home in, in Turtle Lake. But anyhow, yeah, they they went up and they uh, they conducted uh, this this inquest, and that that was one event where they where they wanted neighbor farmers to come forward and tell them anything that that they could that would help with the investigation. And it, it, in their conclusion, I forget what I said in the book that came out of the, out of the, uh, of the, the research was basically uh, that these eight people were brutally murdered. Uh, seven uh, murdered with a shotgun blast at close range to the, to the head. And, uh, and the youngest girl, three years old, was the only one not murdered with a, with a, uh, Shotgun. She was killed with the uh, with a smashing blow uh, to the head from the blunt ed- edge of a of a small axe. Uh, so that and in in the in the book I I uh, do have that point where the where the uh, county coroner is uh, kind of giving a briefing to the investigators and the few reporters who were there and, and he goes through and describes how each of the uh, victims was brutally murdered. And I, I can't remember the page numbers, but I mean, I, that is that is pretty gruesome, gruesome detail. These these were these were brutal murders. Now, Police Chief Martinson comes to the quick conclusion that two people had to have been involved in the murders. Is that correct? That's right. The investigator said there had to be at least two people involved, uh, and, and they agreed on that. Uh, and the reason was is that. Um, uh, this was a this was a double barrel shotgun, and uh, they could account for eight shots, the, the eight shots that, that killed the eight people. Now there were two shots that that went to Wolf, so he he got two of the shotgun shots, and then of course the the youngest girl, the three year old, uh, was was uh, killed with the axe. So they could account for for eight shots, and and what they were saying was that 
if you have a double barrel shotgun, even if you start with the gun being fully loaded, you're going to have to stop three times to break that gun apart, remove the shells, and put in new shells. Now, these, this, this was the 1920s, and um, I remember shotguns that didn't have automatic ejection. Uh, and I remember, you know, sometimes you had to, it wasn't hard work, but you, you had to work a little bit to pull the shells out. So three times, even with a loaded shotgun, you would have, the murderer would have to stop. And according to the confession, which uh, much of it doesn't make a lot of sense or, or hold up, but according to the um, confession, they were all in the house, and uh, Lair or Wolf goes into the, the other room and comes out with a shotgun. They scuffle. Uh, the gun goes off. Mrs. Wolf is killed. Uh, this is according to the confession, and I have there's another part of the story. But anyhow, the gun goes off, and uh, then there's another shot. Well, here you have one man, Lair, now who must have wrestled the shotgun away, and he's let off two shells. He has got to break that gun apart, open rather, pull out the two shotgun shells, put in two more shotgun shells, and in the room now is Jacob Wolf. You know, a, a strong farmer, a 14-year-old hired boy who had probably been throwing harnesses on horses for years already, at least working. So he was no slouch, as my father would say. And you have Mrs. Wolf has been murdered, but you've got Bertha, who's almost 13 years old, and she's strong enough to run. So you've got those people sitting there, and, and, and they just couldn't imagine how uh, one man could have fired those two shots and then done it alone without those people either overwhelming him or running off, somebody running off. So they were convinced that it didn't make sense that there was only one, uh, that there was only one person. They were convinced that it had to be at least two people to execute uh, those murders uh, and get off those eight shells with a double-barrel shotgun. And we're jumping a little ahead of the story with the confession, because at this point, Henry Layer is, is certainly a suspect, but there are other suspects as well. Rumors abound that Mr. Wolf might have been having an affair with one of the, the neighbor women, and that might have created a motive. Is that right? That's right. That, there was one of there were several there were several uh, suspects people who uh, who, who didn't uh, necessarily get along well with Wolf, uh, but there was this neighbor uh, who uh, lived about a quarter of a mile. They were over the hill and north of the farm. I'd say about a quarter of a mile. Away, so they were they were close neighbors. Now, bear in mind these are all German Russians, right? So they're they're a close knit knit community. Now, the year before this uh, this neighbor, his wife had had died, and so he was living on the farm now with his daughter, who was I think 26 at the time, and his son, who I believe was 18. And the daughter was very close to Mrs. Wolf, as you would imagine. I mean, this is North Dakota. Uh, and this this uh, young woman who didn't have any children of her own to take care of, she could, she was very close to to Mrs. Wolf, and and the stories at the time then it, that that lived on even to to my years of growing up there were that that Wolf had had uh, had an, uh, some kind of an affair with uh, with this uh, young young woman. Uh, and and it was public enough so that even her brother in his affidavit. He he said that because uh, they asked him, were you aware of these stories? And he said, yes, I was. And and he said, did anybody ever, the investigator said, did anybody ever talk to you about them? And he said, well, one time, for example, he was working with with a a, a crew in the field and and they took a break, and um, 
somebody was was kidding him about his sister and, and Wolf having sexual relations, and so it was something that was uh, was was known by neighbors, close friends in the area that 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 was a at least a story that was going around. So so he was a suspect as well. So multiple suspects from the go. But despite Martinson's insistence that two men had most likely committed the murders, investigators still honed in on Henry Lair. Why did they choose him? Well, they chose Henry Lair because of this this history of bad uh, feelings that existed for the for several years before this. So that, that was that was wide, widely known. So, like I said, he was a prime suspect, and even Lair knew that he was a he was a prime suspect. Now, they knew they were they were convinced that, that you know, he was a prime suspect, and uh, focusing on him this is, didn't necessarily rule out the possibility of two people being involved. Uh, you know, they knew for sure they were they were becoming increasingly convinced that Henry Lair had to have been involved, and he may have had an accomplice. But but uh, for the time, they were focusing on on Henry Lair. Now, bear in mind, uh, they're getting pressure from Bill Anger. Uh, time is passing, he, and this 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 story. The New York Times reported on this story. Stories, uh, uh, papers across the country reported, were reporting on these mass murders. Uh, the Bismarck Tribune, which was uh, the primary newspaper covering the story, they were getting requests uh, for pictures uh, from newspapers all around the country. So uh, there was a lot of attention. And Langer, of course, being the attorney general, he was getting calls from attorney generals and governors in other neighboring states wanting to know, how are you coming on this investigation? And then, of course, Keep in mind that you know, just a matter of weeks now, uh, down the down the road, there's going to be the Republican uh, convention where he hopes to be nominated for governor. So they head over to Layers Farm late at night, and they ask him to come in for questioning, but they don't arrest him, do they? No, they don't arrest him. No, uh, actually, they went over there. Uh, they they went over there during the day. The first visit to the Lair Farm was. Uh, when Langer arrives on Monday, okay, bear in mind the murder's on Thursday, body's found on Saturday, uh, Sunday there's a lot of investigating going on, and then Monday afternoon Bill Langer, the Attorney General, arrives, and he's, he's briefed by Martinson, and I'm sure the sheriff was there, uh, and uh, he wants to know, do you, do you have any suspects? First of all, he wanted to know, did you think it was, what was the motive? Was was there was robbery a motive? And they said no, that wasn't because there was a cash box in the in the bedroom of the, uh, the the parents' bedroom in the house, and that hadn't that hadn't been disturbed. So robbery was not a suspect. Uh, was it an outsider, or was was it somebody from close by? And and the, the uh, Martinson and, and uh, the sheriff told Langer that that uh, they were pretty sure that it, that it wasn't a, somebody from outside. That it was somebody. Uh, a neighbor who who uh, who knew the wolves and had had some problems with wolves. So he asks, uh, "Who do you have as your prime suspect?" And they start off with this guy Henry Lair, and they tell him, "This is the guy uh, that we're primarily focused on. At least Martinson was." And um, then they reveal to Langer that that this guy even comes up to the sheriff and says, uh, you know, I know I'm a suspect. Well, Langer said, well, "Let's go out and pay this guy a visit." So during the day, they went out and they, they visited him. And it was just, you know, a wool, a Lair, the neighbor, was uh, working on some equipment in the yard. They, they drove in in their Model T Ford, and they just they talked to him just to sort of get a feel for what's going on. And then it was like later that week, they came out at night, 
that they brought him in for interrogation. And that, that was where they got his first formal, first formal affidavit. But then, uh, then he, they let him go back to his farm. And it wasn't until a couple weeks later that they, they brought him in for, for questioning, but not in Turtle Lake where they had done the questioning initially that night. But they took him to Washburn, which is the county seat, and they, they kept him there. And that's, gets us up close to now where the confession comes. But, but that, that, that was the beginning, Eric, in terms of, uh, their, their visits with uh, Henry Lair. And it, yes, you were right. It did, uh, there, there was a, a late night visit where they brought him into town for interrogation. And Martinson makes quick work of things, right? They haul him in, get the confession. And then they bring him in front of a judge the next morning, and it's all over, right? Yeah, well, you know, here's let, let me just back up just a little bit. Uh, on, it was on Tuesday that they go out, and they, uh, and again, they, there's, I could find no record of an arrest. They go out, and that's when they, they ask Henry Lair to come with them, and they said, this time we're taking you to Washburn. Okay, this was on Tuesday. So they, they, they bring him to Washburn. Now, it's kind of interesting because on the way – to Washburn. So here you have, in this automobile, you have the sheriff, uh, Ole Stafford, you have the police chief from Bismarck, you have a reporter, and I think there was a deputy, and you have Lair. So you got five people in the car. And they were driving down the road uh, on their way to Washburn, and at some point, uh, somebody notices a stranger in the, in the bush, right? So they stop the car, and according to whoever's affidavit described this best, the sheriff looks at, sort of looks in the distance and says, you know, I think that's the person who's escaped from the state penitentiary recently. <laughs> this is such a crazy story. Yeah, so they, they run over and, and they catch this man, right? And they bring him and they put him in the car with him. And they take, they take Lair and this guy to Washburn and they put both of them in jail. Uh, they put, uh, and, but they put in, them in cells next to each other, uh, so they could talk to each other and see each other. And uh, as the affidavit, uh, I forget who it was, it was Larry's affidavit, where he said that during the night, uh, this this guy started asking him questions. And he said, uh, did, are you the murderer? Asked him if he did the murders. And he said, no, I didn't. But he was asking him quickly. He, he seemed to be familiar with with the murder, so he asked he asked him some questions, and at one point uh, he woke up Larry and he said, "You know, I've got what I need to break out of jail. Do you want to join me? I've got I've got a saw we can do." And Larry said, "No, I don't. I don't I'm not going to do that because I'm not guilty." Well, the next morning uh, the other the other guy was was uh, taken away, and Larry just assumed that if he was the guy from the penitentiary, they took him to the penitentiary. But I'm pretty sure that this guy was uh, was this was a setup is that they, they put this guy in the jail next to him to uh, to try to see if they could uh, get some information out of Wolf uh, in, in a rather uh, discreet, discreet way. So anyhow, that was on, uh, they, they picked him up on Tuesday, then, then he was in the in the jail cell all alone, all day Wednesday, and he said that uh, he, the only, he never saw anybody except the people who brought him his meal. Then it was that night, about 8 o'clock, so they brought him in on Tuesday, around in the afternoon and nobody talked to him until about eight o'clock on Wednesday when they brought him in for interrogation. And um, that's where he claims he was beaten uh, during the interrogation. And there's evidence that I found in the affidavit of the 
of the prison doctor and also the, the prison barber uh, that he had been beaten. Uh, he, he said that there, during that interrogation, he was told that there was an angry lynch, lynch mob outside uh, waiting to string him up if he was released. And he said that he was told that the safest place for him until this thing blew over was in the state penitentiary where he could file for a change of plea and get a jury trial, which, which he never did. But anyhow, so about 2 o'clock in the morning, I, I believe it was, uh, they brought him out at 8 o'clock, interrogated him until 2 o'clock. Uh, that's when he signed the confession. And that's when they, they woke up the, the state's attorney and had him come over and, and, and write things down. Then it was that uh, that morning uh, he appeared before uh, Judge uh, Nestle, who was a I, didn't, I hope I'm getting this name right here, but uh, the the local local judge. He he signed a confession. He said he stood behind the confession, and um, he didn't ask for and, and wasn't offered uh, legal counsel, and uh, he uh, he just agreed to accept the conviction. And uh, before anybody even knew that he had confessed he was well on his way to the uh, state penitentiary in Bismarck, about 40 miles away. You mentioned he'd been told that there was a mob outside, but but there was no mob. No one knew that he'd even been brought in. That's right. Nobody nobody knew that at all, Eric. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, um, I think it was, oh, it was, yeah, it was the uh, assistant uh, county attorney who in his affidavit said after they had taken Wolf Alaire away to the state penitentiary, he went downtown Washburn to get a haircut, and he was sitting in the barbershop uh, waiting to his turn, and some of the men there were talking about the Wolf murders, and uh, he he gathered from the conversation he was listening to that they had no idea that anybody had even been brought in, much less knowing the name of the man, Henry Lair. I mean, that nobody knew. Uh, and so uh, this was disputed. You know, Lair said that, that they told him there was this lynch mob outside, and the sheriff said, uh, we never said that. But it's a he said, he said kind of situation. So rumors fly after Lair is convicted. Rumors that he had been coerced into signing the confession, or even worse, as you've mentioned, it had been beaten out of him. Why were people so suspicious of Lair's confession? Well, it's because there were so so many things in the confession that just just didn't make sense, and you know I could go through some of those those for you. But I think one thing that's important to understand, and uh, I refer to this as the two realities of of this story, and uh, the one reality is the German Russians. Now, bear in mind, you know all of the participants, you know, in in the murder itself were German Russians, all the neighbors. Uh, none of the investigators were German. Uh, so you had, and, and the German newspapers were covering this story as well, and through uh, translations that I've received from some of the stories in Der Staatsanzeiger, for example, one of the big newspapers out of Bismarck at the time, was that uh, there was there was a German-Russian reality about this story. Then there was the other reality of if you weren't German-Russian, uh, and these were people who uh, who wanted to believe Lair's confession. They wanted to believe that somebody had confessed. They wanted to believe that the investigators had, in fact, found the murderer, so they could they could get on with their lives without any further fear of some murder being running loose. But it was interesting. Uh, so it, it was it was the German Russians, particularly, who uh, 
who were suspicious of of the confession and and, and things in it, and uh, and some of the other townspeople too realized that there were some things in the confession that, that just didn't make sense. What were a couple of the things in the confession that come to your mind that didn't make sense? Well, uh, one one thing was the uh, the time of the time of the murders. Uh, according to the confession, uh, the murders took place late late in the morning. While, while uh, the, the Wolf family was was having having dinner, and uh, what we know from the German newspapers report was that about ten o'clock in the morning, uh, Mrs. Wolf was on the phone with a woman in town, Turtle Lake, talking about some church business, and uh, the woman reported that about ten o'clock the line went dead, so the line had been cut. Also at a neighbor girl about a quarter of a mile uh, southwest of the wolf farm was hanging clothes on the line, and she reported that she had heard gunshots around 10 o'clock coming from the vicinity of the wolf farm, and she didn't think anything of it because it was not uncommon for farmers to use their guns to kill varmints or to uh, to uh, butcher a pig or something. Another was the fact that, according to the confession, uh, five people were killed in the kitchen, and those bodies were, were thrown through the open trap door down into the basement. And that this all occurred, according to confession, uh, after or while they were, while they were having their noon, noon meal. Well, the German newspapers reported that both the hired boy and uh, the hired, and, and the oldest girl, Bertha, uh, they both died with their field gloves on. Uh, and, uh, the paper reported they would not be eating their meal with their work gloves on. Uh, which means that they were murdered, uh, you know, when they were when they had just come back in from from the field, and uh, and, and then the fact that the five bodies being thrown into the into the cellar, the German papers reported there was only one pool of blood on the kitchen floor, and that was from the from the hired boy, because his body was the only body laying right below the ladder going down into the cellar. Bear in mind now that this was a straight ladder. I mean, you open the trap door and then you just walk down a straight ladder into the into the, the cellar. His was the only body laying in front of the ladder, and the crime scene photos that I have seen uh, clearly show that the, the other four bodies were behind the uh, the ladder, which means that uh, they weren't killed in the kitchen. Their bodies were not thrown down. They were in fact murdered uh, in uh, in the cellar. Uh, when they were huddled behind the, the in the area behind the, behind the ladder, and, and there are, there are other issues uh, that that sort of explain how the confession seems to have been uh, written by somebody other than Lair, or he, even though even though he signed it. And I might say as an aside here that I have a, I have a, a website called themurderfamily.com where I have reported some of these confession uh, issues. And uh, there's also a Facebook page about the Wolf family murders, and I'm currently uh, uh, sharing some of those uh, contradictions in the, in the confession. There are a lot of people involved in the investigation that seem to be rewarded politically. You've, you've already mentioned Bob Langer. Police Chief Martinson becomes kind of a celebrity, and he even receives some of the reward money offered to solve the crime. Yeah, after after uh, I think it was after the Supreme Court uh, uh, rejected uh, uh, Lair's final appeal, uh, he did in fact receive the thousand dollar reward that the governor's office had uh, 
made available during the investigation. So, and then, yeah, and he was traveling around and, and he even was, uh, he was at a, a police, uh, he and his wife went to a policeman's investigators meeting in Detroit where he was on the program and, and somebody there from New York asked him for information about the murders for some very uh, important kind of uh, archive of, of uh, famous murder investigation. So, yeah, he, he had achieved, achieved some celebrity status and, uh, that came out of his role that he played in extracting the confession from Henry Lair. So another family moves into the Wolf Farm. Can you talk about what they discovered there? Yes, in November. Uh, now bear in mind, after the murders, you have two families now that that are that are just that are destroyed. The Wolf family, they're all murdered except the the baby girl, and she's now being taken care of by her aunt and uncle who live about five miles east of, of the Wolf Farm. Uh, and uh, then, then Mrs. Uh, Lair, of course, she can't manage the farm without Henry, who's in prison, so she has to sell everything and move off. And then there's also an auction on the wolf farm. Everything is sold there a couple weeks after the murders. And then people are are uh, concerned about the, the wolf farm itself and what's going to happen to that. And um, the aunt and uncle who are taking care of the baby, they decide that they can rent it out if uh, – Anybody wants to, wants to live there, and and that there was this young this young couple. It was uh, I think the last name was Hofer, and they uh, they had several children, a little girl and a couple of boys. And in November, this uh, this man Hofer was up on uh, there was a small uh, windmill that they used to pump water for the the stock tank, and he saw his uh, oldest boys uh, scaring their little sister. He goes down and, and to take care of that situation and finds that, that, that they've they've got some some objects that he hadn't seen before. And what they had were they had they had two masks, handmade cloth masks. Uh one of them had holes for the eyes and the nose and, and mouth and one of them just had holes for the eyes and that one had that was a smaller mask and it seemed to have blood spots on it. They found a woman's dusting cap um, that was that had blood on it as well. There was an empty shotgun shell that was the same uh, same gauge as the shotgun used for the murders, and um, a few other things. But those were those were the main objects that these the boys said that they had found wrapped up in some kind of an oil cloth. Uh, in the, and they found found this oil cloth package in the bushes on the north end of the uh, of the garden. That was just north of, of the house, and so this was considered to be new evidence. And I'm sure that that Lair's lawyers had told the family that one of the things that would help in their appeal to the judge would be if they could bring something new that the judge hadn't considered initially to get him to to change his mind and allow for a non non guilty verdict in, in a jury trial. So let's talk about layers lawyers and the appeals they make to the court what is their strategy in representing him and how do things ultimately turn out for layer well yes first of all let's talk about about his lawyers he had uh, he had uh, two lawyers uh, who had their own uh, law firm in Carrington North Dakota which was about 90 miles east and you might ask why would these lawyers be involved well he um, um, Larry had a brother who lived in that, in that part of the state, and uh, apparently these two had been recommended. So uh, there was Edward Kelly, who was the oldest lawyer, but the, the one who 
who was most important is a man named James Morris, who was uh, he was the younger of the two and seemed to play the major role in uh, in, in in all of the legal work associated with Lear's uh, appeals and, and and his defense. And I, I I mentioned James Morris because he went on to uh, to become quite famous. He was elected to the North Dakota Supreme Court in 1935 and served there until 1964. And he had served as Attorney General before that. So, uh, so he was he was not just your sort of your country lawyer. He was a lawyer with great great uh, credentials. As a matter of fact, uh, after World War II, President Truman he took a year's leave of absence when President Truman appointed him to be a uh, war crimes judge in in Germany. So that was that was this, the stature of of this James James Morris. Now the first thing they had to do was if they wanted to get a change of plea, of plea a change of plea to not guilty, they had to uh, file a petition for a change of plea. But that had to go before the judge, Judge Nestle, who was the one who had actually sentenced Wolf to life in the state penitentiary. Seems a little strange. I don't know how that works. Uh, one of my lawyer friends referred to that as pre-depression law. I have no idea what that term means, but apparently the rules were different. But anyhow, that was their first challenge, was to uh, to submit an appeal to uh, Judge Nestle, who was the one who had, who had convicted Blair and sentenced him to life in prison. And they thought this new evidence would help, and uh, and it didn't. Uh, he made short use of the, of the evidence, saying that it was obviously planted, and it obviously was. Uh, and I believe that, that, it, that it was planted. I mean, uh, there were... The day after the bodies were found, there were hundreds of people roaming the, the area, uh, finding the shotgun, finding the shells in the, in the chicken's nest, and they would have seen that oil cloth package in the, in the shrubbery. But whether it was planted or not, uh, it seemed to the Lair's lawyers that it was quite possible that these objects had been used in the murder. Certainly the shotgun shell was the right cage, and, um, and the two masks, had, uh, one mask and the woman's dusting cap had, uh, had blood on it which would suggest there were two people involved, not, not just one. But he made short shift of the, uh, the judge made short uh, work of the, uh, of this so-called new evidence and went on to say that it was, what it came down to was the, the, the word of, of a man who was sentenced to life in prison against the word of uh, several very upstanding law enforcement officials. So they didn't get in, anywhere with that with that petition for a change of plea, and then right away they went to work on their uh, petition to the North Dakota Supreme Court to get them to hear the case. Did their defense change at all when they presented to the Supreme Court? I know part of their argument was that the confession was coerced, right? Right. Basically, it was it was uh, pretty much the, the same arguments. You know, the new evidence, uh, and, and the Supreme Court, of course, if they were going to re- return this case to the uh, to the lower court, uh, that would be all. If, if, if they would have bought into the idea, wait, you have new evidence here. This is something new that the judge should have considered. We're going to send it back. That didn't go anywhere. Uh, the fact that he was, they argued that he had been beaten and forced to sign sign the confession. Uh, they they didn't uh, they didn't accept that as fact either because it was again uh, the question of uh, the word of of this man who was in prison against the word of the law law enforcement. Officials, even though there was uh, there was evidence provided in the form of affidavits, particularly from the uh, the prison doctor who examined Lair when he was admitted to the penitentiary, and the prison barber who uh, who shaved his head when when he was 
admitted. And the um, the prison uh, the prison doctor's affidavit is very brief, and basically he says that he found Mr. Lair to be in in good health, uh, and he did notice that that there were two areas of ecchymosis. Uh, under on the cheekbones under each eye, well, ecchymosis is a rup- is a ruptured blood vessels, and uh, sort of the common the the, the, the the layman's description of that would be black eyes. So even the prison doctor reported that he had he arrived with two black eyes, but the affidavit for the prison uh, barber was was more telling because when he when he starts to shave him, he notices. Uh, bruises on his head and he said well not, none of them were open or bleeding but he, he didn't notice, notice welts and bruises on his head and he asked him what happened and who did this to him and he said well Lawyer said that it was the, the men who had uh, been involved in the interrogation and uh, then he went on in, in his in his affidavit to say that at that point Lair broke down and began to cry and he said uh, uh, oh my children my poor children what's going to become of my children so it was a it was a pretty compelling kind of statement from the, the prison barber. But the Supreme Court uh, didn't uh, accept that either. And um, without me being able to remember all the details of the four arguments, what it came down to in the end, as far as the, U- the North Dakota Supreme Court was concerned, was the word of a confessed murder against the word of, a, of the law enforcement officials, upstanding as, as they were. How did Henry Layer fare in prison? And what was his ultimate fate? Henry Lair uh, was a model prisoner, according to the prison warden. And as a matter of fact, in the the affidavit from the prison warden, he said that he found him to be more the likes of a mild prairie farmer than a mass murderer. That was his description of this man. Well, murderers, you can can be a nice guy and appear nice and you can murder somebody, but but that was his take on this, this guy. So he was apparently a model prisoner. He ended up working in the in the prison laundry laundry, and uh, at a certain point he uh, was in charge of the prison laundry. He was in the prison and he was admitted in uh, in May of 1920, and in November of 1925 uh, he had uh, an appendectomy. Returned to the penitentiary uh, in their infirmary, and uh, that's where he died from complications from that surgery. And um, the prison doctor uh, said that it appeared that he had lost his will, will to live, although that was not what, what was the cause of his death. The cause of his death was uh, something resulting from the complications of this of this surgery. After Layer dies, new information is discovered about the case. We learn that there was another investigation going on at the farm a few months after Layer went to prison. Well, this is really interesting uh, because, uh, uh, first of all, uh, what about our friend, uh, the Attorney General, Bill Langer, who was who had received the Republican nomination for governor? Well, he ran in that election that fall, and he lost, which means he was now not only not the governor, he was no longer the Attorney General. I knew a new uh, a man, uh, William Lemke, Bill Lemke, uh, became the Attorney General. So he was he was new to this case, right? And so in February, the Bismarck Tribune reports that uh, the new Attorney General has his men making mysterious trips back to Turtle Lake area and that they are working independent of the McLean County authorities and that they are saying that there's some some additional arrests are going to be made. This was in February. The murders were in in uh, April, the end of April, the year before. So the question is, what were they investigating? Who who were some of the uh, 
some of the additional suspects and why were they working independent of the uh, of the McLean County uh, County authorities? And those were all questions that that were left unanswered because the investigation from this new attorney general was was stopped. So there's another twist to the story. We find out that Layer claimed he knew who the real killer was. It was a, a mysterious man locked away in an insane asylum. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Lair, you know, that, this is something that was fascinating, but uh, nobody could really trace its authenticity. Uh, and, and what it was is that there was a story about somebody who had been in the state, I'm trying to remember now this because it's been a while since I thought about this, but there had, uh, there, were, there was somebody in the, uh, in the, what they then called the insane asylum in Jamestown who, uh, had said that he, uh, that there was another inmate there who claimed that he was the man who, who committed the Wolf family murders. Now the man who had this story was, was transferred to the state penitentiary and then he shared that story with uh, Henry Lair, and Henry Lair shared that story with his brother-in-law, and uh, his brother-in-law then tried to get the authorities to pick up on that, and he even tried to get the newspapers to report on that, and he didn't have any any success because uh, the, the the source in the in the insane asylum had since passed away, and uh, nobody had any names or anything that they could use to to trace that story. I know you're a journalist and facts are incredibly important to you. And what I'm about to ask you is, is pure speculation, of course, I know. But I'll ask you anyway. <laughs> Do you have any personal thoughts on who killed the Wolf family? Well, to begin with, um, I'm pretty convinced that Henry Lair did not commit the murders. And I know that his lawyer, especially James Morris, who went on to be a, a celebrated uh, justice in, in North Dakota and and in the, in, the, in the war crimes trials and so on, a man of great reputation, uh, uh, he, I know for certain, did not believe that Henry Laird did the murders. But one of the things that uh, when I was growing up that, that we heard as part of the story was what Henry Laird had said to declare his innocence. And what he said was that my eyes have seen, but my hands are clean. And that's a kind of a mysterious little expression uh, but it seems to suggest that that Lair that Lair didn't do it, uh, but he probably knew who did. And when I was writing the book, I realized that um, that that was a very important um, declaration of his, and I wanted to uh, I, I, wa- I wanted to put it in the book. And I knew that if he said it, which I believe he did, he would have said it first in German. And um, so the, the person I was working with, who was doing a lot of translations for me from the German language newspapers. I did some research and, and uh, found out that that was an expression that went actually went back to the old country in the south of Russia, where a lot of these German farmers had had settled for free land uh, gener- or generations before. But it basically it was an old German-Russian expression that that did mean, in fact, that uh, uh, you know I I didn't do it, but I know more than I can tell you. That was sort of the conclusion of it. So you, you take that that declaration, and then uh, then you 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 bring it to tie it to the fact that there's much in the confession that uh, that doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense, and 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 we deal with that in the novel with the uh, with the conversations in the restaurant where 
where neighbors are talking about the things in the confession that don't make sense. So I don't think the confession was authentic. I believe that Henry Lars signed the confession. I don't believe that he wrote the confession. I believe he was forced to sign it, and there's plenty of evidence that he was beaten and lied to. Um, but then what you get to is this so-called new evidence, the, the evidence of the uh, materials that were found on the farm in November, when about seven months after the murders, uh, the two uh, the two handmade cloth masks, the woman's dusting cap with uh, with uh, blood on it, the, the, the empty shotgun shell. I believe that while those objects were obviously planted months after the murder, that they were probably planted there because uh, somebody had told people involved in the murder or involved in Larry's defense that uh, that uh, what the judge needed was some some new information and this would this would be it. So, what I had always been concerned about was or how how Henry Lair, the man who signed the confession, how according to the confession he could have taken the route that he said he took. Uh, and gotten to the wolf farm in late morning, as he says, or as the confession says, how a grown person could have walked those two miles and not be observed by other farmers in their fields. And um, it turns out that I have affidavits from about a half a dozen farmers who, who were, you know, they were asked, what were you doing that day? Uh, I was in the field. Who did you see? And then they would describe the different neighbors that they could see uh, in, the, in, the, in the working in their fields. So it seemed kind of difficult for me to understand how a grown man could, could walk that way. Well, I, I ended up talking actually to the, uh, I think, the grandson of John Kraft, the man who found the bodies, and he, he grew up in that area, and now he's living on the Kraft farm. He said, that would be easy. There are some ravines running from Lair's, uh, Lair's farm. Uh, they run south, uh, deep ravines. They run south uh, past uh, the hills just to the east of the, of the wolf farm. So it would be very easy for someone to go from Lair's place uh, down those ravines up over the hills hill into the uh, farmyard. So with, with that, you know, I'm trying, trying to put things together. It seems to me that... Uh, if you have two masks, it could have been two people involved. He could have left from Wolf's farm. Uh, that would mean he, he would know who they are, but he's not involved in it. He could have walked across through the ravines and over the hill into the yard, and they could have put on their masks. And then they could have gone into the farm, and about 10 o'clock, as the neighbor woman said, who was on the fo phone with uh, Mrs. Mrs. Wolf, the line was cut. And um, they could have uh, they could have sort of managed the murders murders that way, waiting for uh, Wolf and the hired boy to come back to the farm. So you have a theory on how it might have happened, but we we still don't know who or why. No, we don't know who we don't know who they are. But um, uh, just in terms of, of, of pure speculation, it seems to me that if 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 you uh, if you follow this scenario, that these masks and the woman's dusting cap were used in the murders, let's just assume that they were. Uh, that would mean that, that these people could have come into the wolf farm. Well, if they planned to kill everybody, why were they wearing masks? So obviously they weren't planning to kill everybody. They came to the farm probably thinking that Mrs. Wolf would be there with her daughters. They would be in the laundry and her clothes hanging the clothes on the line and things like that. And they thought they could have just uh, ushered them into the 
into the basement uh, and, and then waited for a wolf to come. Now you'd have to wonder what, what are they waiting for wolf to come? Well, probably wolf had done something to them or their families that that was uh, that that they were coming to uh, get some revenge for, with no intention of murdering and probably intending just to to give the guy a beating and, and run off. But this was uh, probably, you know, a bad idea to begin with and a bad idea that just got worse because things didn't pan out the way they, way they were supposed to. First of all, they didn't know that Wolf had a hired man. They didn't know that Bertha would be out in the field when they arrived. And um, so this, this lousy plan to begin with uh, fell apart. And in the end, eight people ended up dead. We'll never know for sure, who did it. But um, all I can say is that it seems clear to me that Henry Lair, who may have known who did it, uh, was not the murderer. You know, a couple things that happened. First of all, um, we know that the, the two, Bertha, at around 10 o'clock, and that's when I believe whoever murdered the Wolf family arrived on the farm. And I believe there were two people, and I think those two masks were involved. But uh, they expected that Mrs. Wolf would be in the house with the girls. They didn't know Bertha was going to be in the field. But also that the other two oldest girls, Maria and Edna, who were nine and seven, they were folding clothes in their mother's bedroom. And they heard, when they heard the commotion in the kitchen, uh, they escaped through the bedroom window. And, and the, the investigators did find that the window was open, large enough for some girls to get through. They saw footprint evidence, and they ran to the barn. So when they, when they whoever was there realized that that the girls weren't there and that Bertha wasn't there and all they had was Mrs. Wolf and the two youngest girls, um, that's when the things start to fall apart. And um, for whatever reason, uh, people started getting shot. And I think that by the time uh, Kraft saw Wolf and his uh, hired boy and hitch their teams around 11 o'clock, I think uh, that uh, the rest of the family had already been murdered. And when they arrived in the farm uh, and, and, and nobody came out to greet them, that they realized that something was wrong. And I think that Wolf probably told the hired boy, go see what's going on. And that's when the hired boy would have been shot in the kitchen. Wolf was going to put up the horses. When he heard the shot, he runs towards the house. He sees he's met by a person with a shotgun. He starts running towards the barn. That's where he shot long distance. And then he's shot, shot closer up. So, I mean, all of that you know, can be explained in that scenario. We don't know for sure if it's true. Uh, but one thing we also don't know is who was involved and what was their motive. Where do these murders place in the history of North Dakota crime? I mean, it must be one of the more well-known sensational crimes in your state's history. You know, that's really interesting because um, I don't think it was. Uh, when I was growing up, and I, I lived in the epicenter of that town, we had... We had a farm northwest of town, but we lived in town, and we would drive by the wolf farm every time we would go uh, out to our farm. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, people weren't talking about this. Uh, and I think because there was so much uncertainty about who really did the crime and, and what the motive was. Now, I do believe, and I've learned this all since the book came out, and I've come to know a lot of different people who shared stories with me. I do believe this that was different in the German-Russian community. Now, these... This was a, could be considered kind of a closed community. They all spoke German. They, they all came from Russia. They were, uh, they were close. And, and, and what I have learned is that they talked about it. 
but they didn't talk to people outside of the German-Russian community about it, and people outside the German-Russian community didn't talk about it because, you know, they would say, well, that, you know, where's signs of confession that that's the end of that story we don't have to talk about. It. Now, when the when the book comes out, I really find this interesting. I mean, uh, we sold 3,000 copies in two months, and, and most of those copies were sold in North Dakota. And I was surprised at how many people were not, they had may have heard about the story, but they weren't familiar with it. Now, the people who would have heard about the story were German-Russian. The people who probably hadn't heard about it were not German-Russian. And I remember at a book signing event in uh, in Bismarck at the Barnes & Noble bookstore, there was a long line of people. And, and I was watching this old older gentleman, probably in his 80s, and uh, he said something that I thought was the most interesting comment I have heard. He comes up and to get my his book signed, and he said, I really, I really enjoyed your book. I said, thank you very much. And here's what he said. Thank you for giving us permission to talk about this story. I thought that was that was so telling about the fact that people weren't talking about this, but now they had a book uh, written by a journalist based on facts from the legal and historical record uh, that they could they could react to, and now they had, as he said, permission to talk about this story. Well, that's a great way to end the interview. Now, you mentioned it once already, but I'll ask you one more time. Where can people go for information about the case and your book? Well, there's a lot of a lot of information on on the book's website, and that's where I posted a lot of information from my research. And that the website is www.themurderedfamily.com. You know, the book can be purchased online. Uh, it can be purchased as an ebook. If you're up in 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 North Dakota, South Dakota, probably Western Minnesota, you might be able to find it in bookstores. For sure, in North Dakota, you're going to find it in bookstores. Thank you again for your time. All right, Eric. Nice talking to you. And thanks for contacting me about this. I really appreciate it. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Tomorrow.